Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm sitting here today with a friend who is an author. Her name is Marsha Scarborough. She's the author of Honey in the River, Shadow, Sex, and West African Spirituality. She is a freelance journalist who has had over 75 articles published in national magazines. Her first book, Medicine Dance, One Woman's Healing Journey into the World of Native American Sweat Lodges, Drumming Meditations, and Dance Fasts, was honored with several awards. Marsha spent 17 years scheduling, planning, and running the sets of major feature films and primetime television. Along the way, Marsha traveled with Buddhist teacher Joan Halifax, danced to his movement guru Gabriel Roth, and earned a brown belt in karate from martial arts legend Tag Tak Kubota, and participated in Native American healing ceremonies and produced workshops for a Nigerian master drummer. She presently lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Welcome, Marsha. Thank you, Joanna. Great to be here with you. Last time, I, some years ago, I interviewed you about your Native American book. And uh, now I read the galleys of this book, Honey in the River, in October or November, and I stayed glued in my chair for many, many hours reading this book and um, and actually had the honor of writing a blurb for it. And the blurb I wrote immediately after reading the book. And in spite of the fact that it's a book about African mythology, about African gods, and about strangely... I mean, strangely, because the rest of what I'm going to say, strangely about the fact that you were one of four wives of an African master dancer and ceremonialist. To me, it's a book about a journey of one woman's road to self-love. So would you speak to us about 
the story? Well, the book has a couple of stories, and one of them is about learning about this religion, Ifa, which I think has been pejoratively called voodoo and something we've been taught to be afraid of. And in fact, I find it very sophisticated, complex, and life-affirming. So there's the story of that and learning about that. And then there's the romance of me falling in love with the polygamous African shaman and the complications of uh, trying to apply the theory of polygamy and make it work and all the problems and conflicts that come up around that and the examination of, uh, you know, the pros and cons of monogamy and its possible alternatives. And in that process, learning that I'm the one that I really love and I think growing in that way. That's really beautiful. So we have two themes here that we want to explore today. So, and they're both uh, very scary to people. I mean, speaking voodoo, Speaking about non-exclusive love affair, that's very daring. So perhaps let's start with the voodoo and why is it frightening to people and what you have discovered that the, what it really is. So the religion is called Ifa and it's the practice of the Yoruba people of Nigeria. And it's not, they're very clear that it's not magic. It's not certainly not black magic, and it's not magic at all. It's a focused spiritual practice. And the practice is primarily revolves around vibration, because we know from quantum physics that we're just molecules moving, electrons moving, nothing is really solid. And so we are vibration, we are music, and the other music in the form of drumming rhythms, Chanting and repetitive movement of dance can impact our vibration and realign molecules that have fallen out of harmony. So the religion is really about realigning and bringing things back into balance, back into harmony. The other part of the religion is this mythology that I think is equal to Greek mythology. We just don't know anything about it as white people in America. There are Ifa practitioners, of course, this is very basic to them. But in their world, there is one overarching uh, energy of creation called Olodumare. So that might be the equivalent of what we call God, although they don't personify it as a a person of any kind, it's the energy of creation, Olodumare. Then between humans and Olodumare, there are intermediaries that they call Orishas. And these Orishas are complex idea in themselves. They were um, people in historic times, but they ascended to divinity. They are also natural elements as well as that. And they are also psychological archetypes. So Oshun, who is the goddess, the Orisha of love and eroticism, was a beautiful woman who was married to powerful leaders in the past, but she is also the river. The river is Oshun. 
And then she is a psychological archetype that is in within all of us, the sort of Aphrodite of the African pantheon. So there are 400 Orishas. I write about maybe the big seven, the most popular, but there are many, many Orishas. So they, the teaching is that we all have all the Orishas within us. One of them may dominate, and that Orisha is called our head. That might get us into trouble that we're too dominant in one energy because the religion itself is about balance and bringing all these different psychological archetypes back into balance. And since they are all also natural elements like the river, the ocean, fire, air, then it's about bringing the earth back into balance as well. So it's really about complexity, the complexity of, of human beings and our psychology and the complexity of nature. Very sophisticated idea. I want to ask you, why did you choose to tell this as a personal story rather than just a, an expose about this religion and these multiple Orishas and gods? Well, as I was learning about the Orishas from my teacher, who I then fell in love with, I realized that our personal soap opera was paralleling the uh, archetypal drama of the Orisha mythology. Because in the mythology, um, Oshun is married to Ogun, the, the, so the, the goddess of love is married to the goddess of uh, war, but she falls in love with Shango, who is the god of fire, the Orisha of fire, but he's married to Oya, who is the wind, and then hijinks occur. So uh, I realized that we were kind of living this archetypal drama on our own uh, profane level. And so I thought that really the two stories had to be told together. So obviously uh, you experienced a lot of pain in this uh, adventure. I would love it if you would tell us how you chose to use this pain to purify yourself rather than to victimize yourself. Well, I think one of the basic teachings in all indigenous religions is that we aren't victims, that we uh, chose everything that happened to us before we came here. And that's very explicit in Ifa, that when we were creative, we talked to uh, Orunmila, who is in charge of divination, about what we want to learn in this life, and he remembers for us, and we forget and then we come into uh, life and these things happen to us and we need to remember what we wanted to learn from them. So I wanted to take that teaching to heart and not that, you know, somebody did me wrong, but that I had things I needed to learn from this um, to empower myself. And hopefully I did. Oh, the story is very obviously uh, composted in the book. In a, in a very beautiful way. <laughs> so I'd like to talk with you about dance. I mean, dance has an enormous um, place in your life. 
and uh, you've danced with Gabriel Roth, bless her soul, and uh, dance has a big place in your book. And dance was also the main part of my teaching with my Native American teacher, which I thought was interesting that I found two teachers who focused on dance as the center of the healing process. So uh, because we are all just energy, we're just molecules moving, the uh, aligning ourselves with the music and the sacred rhythm of drumming. So both the Native American teachings and the African teachings have specific sacred drum rhythms, which are quite different and have a very different feeling to them. But it's um, as we move in alignment with those sacred rhythms that are time-tested healing rhythms, uh, we heal ourselves, both physically and psychologically. So the dancing becomes a deep meditation, and this was the heart of Gabrielle's work, that the dance is a meditation for the dancer. And in, in both the Native American and the African, that's part the main part of it. There's no audience in any of this. This is a meditation for the dancer. No one's watching. Everyone is dancing and in the, in the meditation. So in the African teaching, you have this powerful then group meditation. Everyone is trancing because the drum automatically makes you go into trance. Everyone is in trance together, moving together, moving energy in the same direction together. And then the layer of chanting over it are affirmations. I am alive and well. Something good is happening. And you're all saying that together. And in fact, you're, you're creating that energy that you want. So I think that is maybe what scared people when they saw this practice and they called it voodoo and black magic because I think it is so powerful to see a group of people all moving energy in the same direction together that if it's not in the direction you want things to go or you don't understand what's going on, it can look really scary. So talk about your beginnings, how the American child, Marsha, came to wander into these amazing Native American, African fields. So I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I was an L.A. girl. And eventually I went to work in the film industry in Los Angeles. And that's a whole mythology and training unto itself. Uh, And quite a a bit of endurance is, is involved in that. And also a a deep-centered calm to deal with all the egos and drama that goes on on a movie set. So I think that was a good uh, beginning. Uh, I got to a place after about 15 years in that career where everything in my life started to go wrong. That's when you know you need to change direction. So um, I got fired from the job. My parents were died. My marriage was going south. And then I had a bad mammogram. And in the American healthcare system where you have to then wait for the next, you know, the re-mammogram and then you have to wait for the radiologist. And then in that period, someone came to me and said, you know, there's a Native American medicine man in town doing private healings. I'm like, sign me up. At this point, I'll try anything. I didn't necessarily believe in it at that point, but I was so fearful and desperate. I was like, okay. It was an amazing healing session. I went back for the 
ultrasound. It was completely gone. They couldn't explain, you know, why I was even there. So then I was really interested in what this, uh, the Native American teachings were, and I became very involved in it. Um, the, at that time was the, um, the trial of the officers who brutalized Rodney King. We had all seen him being beaten on video. There was the trial, and they were acquitted. And the city went crazy. The city was on fire. It was riots everywhere. And at that point, I thought, you know, Native Americans are finding empowerment from going back to their spiritual roots of the sweat lodge, of the pipe ceremony, a white buffalo woman. Africans must have a spiritual, indigenous spirituality, too, that if they got back to that root, they could find more empowerment around this racist racism situation. It could impact racism in America. About a week later, I got a flyer for ceremony um, with an African shaman who had just arrived from New York, who was from Nigeria, and this was my teacher, uh, the Babalao that I became involved with. So I went to the ceremony. It was all new to me and somewhat confusing. I wasn't really able to absorb exactly what was going on, and uh, it seemed to be like a one-off. And then a year later, I was working with some spiritual people I worked with. We were planning a healing ceremony for the city a year after those riots. And he showed up as part of that ceremony. And I was making a documentary of it. And so then I had to go talk to him to figure out the narration of the documentary. And then I became really interested. And I saw many parallels with the Native American teaching. And that was what was really so interesting to me. The whole thing of the vibration, the drumming, the dancing, the chanting uh, as healing. And so it was like, it just seemed faded to me. And I think, I don't know, it's the, the idea of going back to ancient teachings, ancient wisdom. And how can it, how can it affect our contemporary lives? How can we use it in our contemporary lives? I think that's my Topic. I have a friend who says, uh, who's from Europe, who says America is a country of homesick people. And uh, but the way I've interpreted it through the years is uh, homesick for nature, homesick for the true ancestors that were really connected to the earth. So I'd like you to talk about what you've learned about how Africans, Nigerians are connected to the earth in ways that we might not be and that we can be taught to appreciate. Well, I think it's in the study of the Orishas. So a few of the the big Orishas the, the, that I know about, and there are many that I don't know very much about, but... Um, Nene is the actual mud, the sort of primordial ooze of the earth that we come out of, and she's the initial mother. Mm. And then Obatala is the sort of wise old man archetype, and he is the one who created uh, earth and people. And uh, so he is uh, the Orisha of creativity and... Uh, and like the initial father. 
And then Yemanja is the ocean, and she's the next mother that we all are mothered by the ocean. And um, she has a masculine and feminine aspects. So her feminine aspect, Yemanja, is we see her as the mermaid. And she's the sparkle of sunlight on the water, or the white foam is the train of her dress. And then Olokun is the masculine aspect of the ocean, which is about the depths the cold, the sunken ships and fish hooks and the kind of scary aspect of the ocean. So they appear often back to back, those those two. And then Yemaja is the mother of both Oshun, the sweet water, the river, who is the Aphrodite goddess of love and eroticism, and Oya, who is the wind, the tornado, the whirlwind, who is feminine leadership, feminine fury, and the truth. And then their, their two consorts, Ogun, the god of iron or the god of war, who lives in the forest and is almost a, a hermit in the forest. Um, and he's the warrior, and he, with his machete, he clears our path of any obstacles. So we often go to him if our, our path is... Uh, obstructed. Obstructed in some way. And then Shango, the god of fire, thunder, and lightning, uh, who is dynamic. He's a judge. He was a king and a judge, and justice is in his realm. Um, he's very sexy, very you know seductive. He has a lot of wives. Um, and so he was originally married to Oya, the wind, and then he fell in love with Oshun, the water. And uh, when he divorced Oya, she was really mad. And so she kept uh, some of the thunderbolts. But he, without Oya, he didn't know where to throw the thunderbolts. So even though they're divorced, they still have to work together for thunder and lightning to occur. But the key Orisha, the one that is always brought worship first or honored first in the ceremony is Eshu. And Eshu is the trickster. He lives behind our head and he pushes us to do self-sabotaging things to get ourselves in trouble. So he's um, he has another aspect that's the community uh, trickster. So he, Eshu is the individual trickster. The community trickster is called Elegba. So um, Eshu, when he is made into an image for us to see, he has goat horns and he has hooves, and sometimes he has a, a pitchfork. His colors are red and black. So people who don't know the religion, like Christian missionaries or slave owners, perhaps, would think that he's the devil. And so they projected the idea that Eshu is the devil onto him. But Actually, in Ifa, there is not the there is no devil. The de- devil is a completely Christian idea, mm-hmm. but there's also not even the concept of evil. There's no idea of good and evil within Ifa. There's only things in balance and things out of balance. So Eshu is called first in the ceremony because we ask him to come out from behind our head, in front where we can see him, and once we can see him, see our own shadow, see the self sabotaging things we do see our weaknesses, 
then he becomes the messenger to the other Orishas. So then he does our bidding to go to all these other uh, energies that we, we need to invoke to balance ourselves. I want to ask you, in the personal story into which you weave all this knowledge that's fascinating, uh, speak about the difference in values that you encountered and the difficult places where you needed to understand another way of being and looking at things with your African community and your African lover. So there is definitely adventures in culture clash here. So Yorubas are polygamous, or they can be polygamous. So the men can have more more than one wife. And I was willing to explore that because monogamy had not worked particularly well for me. I had been married for a long time that ended, and it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me that we were going to say, all right, we're going to be together forever, and it's going to be easy and fun, and it's just more complicated than that. So I thought, okay, here's this ancient wisdom, polygamy, that's what they do. How does it work? So a lot of the story is me trying to investigate, well, how does it work in Africa, and how can we make it work here? So it seemed like uh, there were rules in Africa, which were that um, men cannot divorce women. Women can only divorce men. Mm-hmm. So that once the man married her, he was responsible for all these wives taking care of them. He couldn't really eject them. Uh, another part of it was there was supposed to be a schedule. Well, in Africa, according to my informants, which may, who may or may not be reliable, um, there would be a compound and each wife would have a room around the compound and then the communal area in the middle where meals occurred and that kind of thing. Uh, that not being practical, then the alternative is there's supposed to be a schedule where you get three days and then he moves on to the next person for three days and the next person for three days. Now, that actually appealed to me because what, one of the things I didn't like about marriage was it was too much closeness. I didn't have any solitude. I didn't have time to do the things I wanted to do and my needs kept getting hijacked for his needs. So I thought, okay, three days on, six days off, that that could work. (laughs) That could work for me. In reality, in application, my three days kept getting um, preempted by other people's problems. So, you know, it didn't seem like it was working in a, a fair way for me. The other big question for me was around the truth. Like what, for me, for it to truly be polygamy, everybody has to know what's going on. You can't be hiding wives in the, you know, shadows somewhere that no one knows about. And then he would say, well, but, you know, how do you think it, you take another wife? You have to sort of audition them. And, well, maybe there's something there or maybe not. Or is he really telling me the truth? And then I went to some other sources, like in a female uh, Babalao that I found and got her opinion and, you know, some other African sources. And what she said was, yes, polygamy, those are all the rules and theories. The man is supposed to support all the women, which my lover never supported any of us, I don't think. <laughs> um, financially. Financially. Um, but she said, but, you know, it has, 
It has to be truthful. And of course, the women never like it. And he even said that when he was raised in this big family with um, different wives, that the children, as a child, he was told to never eat at anybody's house but his mother's house or his grandmother's house because rival wives would try to poison each other's children to get more resources for themselves. So I was like, that doesn't sound like a happy uh, situation necessarily. So I think, you know, I realized it was very problematic in the way it was practiced in Africa and that there was a lot of deception around the way it was being practiced here, which was just kind of emotionally abusive. And uh, so I think there are lessons to be learned from both monogamy and polygamy and that maybe there's some other alternatives out there for us. I think this is a very hot topic at the moment. And um, I want to ask you, this is a very, it seems to me as a very patriarchal way of doing things. What are your feelings as a woman and a, and a feminist, I think, you are about having learned in life from this particular situation? I think it, you're absolutely right. It completely works to the advantage of the man and just reinforces the patriarchy. So I think that it's, it's not an alternative for empowered women. Um, now, at a certain point in the situation, I said, well, if you're going to have other women, I'm going to have other men. And I, I did have other lovers, and I think that was better, as, from my point of view especially. And uh, that felt kind of easy and natural to me. So I think more of a polyamorous situation where you both have uh, other friends. The interesting book I read that I uh, refer to in there is Sex at Dawn um, by the two researchers who went back and tried to study what they thought sexual habits of people were before agriculture, because it seems like the nuclear family started at agriculture. Yeah. And then when you think about it, the nuclear family really doesn't make any sense as far as a sustainable strategy when women are dying in childbirth and men are being killed in hunting accidents. One man, one woman raising children, the children would not survive. So it, it, it had to have been a clan of some kind. So what they found, what they decided on in their book, it was that it had to be um, a clan of 150 people or less who were hunter-gatherers with matriarchal lineages, older women in charge who used sex for bonding between people and to control the testosterone-driven young males. And then within the clan, each person would have three or four mates that were well-known to them. So it wasn't like... It's promiscuous and everybody's sleeping with strangers. No, there are three or four people who you know well, and they have three or four people that they know well. And then the paternity of children is not known or doesn't need to be known, and the clan itself raises the children. So if we could go back to a practical hunter-gatherer situation, <laughs> that might work. <laughs> so is this uh, your... Your takeaway, what, what do you, with um, 20 years, 15 years uh, experience and composting this story, what is your 
idea about how we can live successfully between men and women uh, when sex is involved? I don't have the answer, but I think there are some alternatives we could consider and work with. And one of them is I think that groups of women raising children and sharing financial and household duties would make more sense. And then men could be invited in uh, as needed or wanted. And this is in the Chinese Musu culture of southern China. They have the, what they call the walking marriage, where the women of childbearing age have a room that opens onto the street. And after dark, a, a mate can join them in that room. And then he, he goes back to his place before dawn. And the family is the mother and her daughter's children. So the mother's family is raising the children. The males are the uncles of the children. The father of the children is not revealed and does not have a place in the family. He's in his mother's family as a a parent to his sister's children. And then there's no child custody issues. There's no divorce. There's no... You know, so that's a possibility that the family is centered around the mother's side and the father doesn't live with the family. Another one would be um, the three or four, you know, three or four people. And we know that we have one lover and a couple others and everybody knows what's going on. I think that's a, another possibility. I bet honesty has got to be part of the thing or it doesn't work. Well, it's kind of hard for us humans to be honest. And then there's the issue of feelings that go back to early childhood and so on. I want to ask you... Let me say, yes, it, it is hard to be honest, but we have to be, even though it's hard. It's something we have to learn how to do. And those working with those feelings that go back to childhood, I think is part of the benefit and the, um, you know, you know, the work of what we have to do to make this work. And a lot of times we don't want to be honest because we're manipulating. So we don't, I don't want him to know about you because then you might, no, you have to be honest and give up trying to manipulate the situation whatever happens if somebody gets mad and leaves that's what happens they have to do what's right for them so you know it's it's a complex human problem how do we be honest how do we not manipulate how do we go and embrace those feelings and work through them those childhood feelings so What are the positive, really positive, wonderful life lessons that you've taken away from being in this African community? We have to dance. (laughs) I really think that Ifa is a beautiful religion. And, you know, how, how to live any religion is an interesting question and a challenge. But I think Ifa offers a lot of opportunity for us to embrace our complexity, for us to balance the different energies that we have, um, and for us to be in a joyful celebration with other people. 
I think, you know, for me, that's all really important. Um, I think the biggest life lesson is honesty. I mean, there were times that I was dishonest. I certainly lied about things. I certainly kept secrets. I would not do that again. I think, you know, I have to be honest and I want the people that I'm involved with to be honest. And I think that's just absolutely basic for any kind of relationship. Those are the really huge lessons that I learned. And this is in your personal story. I mean, this is not uh, not particularly from the African culture. So perhaps you could add uh, what you have you learned. I mean, I was very touched about what you learned on a personal level, and uh, I encourage people to read this book for that and other reasons. Uh, but from the culture itself. So from the culture itself, the question of being honest, I don't know how that really works in the culture because I don't know how reliable all my informants are. I believe that the religion requires honesty. It's not always practiced that way, but I, I do believe that the religion requires it. I think that the idea of balancing archetypes is something that we also see in Jung, and that this religion anticipated Jung by thousands of years. And um, the ceremony itself is the technology that I don't think Jung found of how we experience and balance these archetypes, how we let the energy of the different archetypes run through us. And the indigenous Yoruba people who practice this are very aware that these are psychological archetypes in the same sense that Jung meant it although they may not know who Jung is. They don't think this is literally true. They you know, they know it's a myth. They know it's a metaphor. They know that their psychology is complicated and these things help them work with it and balance it. And that's what I find so sophisticated about the religion and the idea that our, we, our happiness, our health, and the way we negotiate the world is better when we embrace our own complexity, bring our shadow in front of us, look at where we're weak, look at where we're addicted, look at where we're hiding things. Um, I think that is so much more deep than a you know, good, evil, choose one kind of religion. This is something that's more like the way human beings are and the more uh, like the way life is and reflecting nature, which is, of course, very complex. So, in other words, uh, this is a manner of cause and effect. If you want to change the effect, uh, pay great attention to the cause. You're responsible. Basically, you're, you're responsible for creating your own life. And... You know, if you have a the, the idea of divination where you go and you consult someone who is reading these shells, really all they're doing is diagnosing where you're out of balance. They're not predicting the future. They're helping you see where you're out of balance, what you're hiding. And then they come up with the ritual, which is the, which is the concretization of changing that. 
How do we bring Eshu out? How do we honor Eshu? And then what's the next step that we go to to bring in the energy that we're lacking that's going to make us more balanced? Would you describe uh, a ceremony? Okay, so every ceremony uh, enters, uh, begins with a, a dance where the, the dancers enter and they um, conquer, or sac- make the ground sacred. This is, they create the sacred space with the opening dance, which is Ajaja. And in that dance, the caller calls out in Yoruba, Ajaja, which means, are there any spirits here? And the respondents answer, I am here. I am spirit. So right from the very beginning, we acknowledge that we are what's sacred. We're the sacred ones making the ceremony. Mm. We are the spirit. So that's the opening dance. Uh, Then the uh, leader will call in the four directions. uh, Ile Bobo, Ile Arisha, which is uh, Obatala who created the land. He is in charge of the four directions. Then Eshu. Then call in Eshu uh, and ask him to bring our to come out from behind our head so we can see him. We honor him with the dance, with offerings, um, and make him happy and make him the messenger to the other Arishas. Then we start calling what other Arishas we may want for this particular ceremony. Shango for, for fire, for manifestation. Oshun for love. Um, and often part of the ceremony is something called the Iwosan, which I found a very profound ceremony. Uh, the translation would maybe be taste the taste of life or the tastes of life. And on the altar are all these little bowls that contain different foods, sugar, honey, salt, chili, hot pepper, um, bitter, the bitter cola. It's a bitter nut from Africa, um, water. And in the ceremony, each bowl is passed and all the celebrants taste each of these things. And the leader says, taste salt, the taste of tears, the taste of sweat. Taste honey, the natural sweetness of life. Taste the spice, that are spicy. Taste the bitterness. All these things are part of life. So in this ceremony... We embrace this complexity of life, that it's going to have many different tastes, many different qualities, many different feelings. And it's the wholeness of all of that that is what we want and desire to be happy. It's not only sugar. It's all these things. To me, that was a very profound ceremony. After that, then we would call all 400 Arishas so no one feels left out with the rhythm called rumba. And at each stage of this, we dance. After each of these stages, we have a big high-energy dance. Um, And then the final dance is always Ogun, the god of iron, because in this time we're going to go home in our cars, and he's in charge of cars, and we want to be safe. So the dance for Ogun. And then there'll be some kind of sharing of food, some feasting. Often there's fruit on the altar. We eat the fruit. And then the dancing continues way late into the wee hours before everybody goes home now feeling full of joy and exhausted. Beautiful. I have a mischievous question. Do you have some idea why African people 
seem to be much more full of rhythm and sexuality than us white people. Well, when we when I notice the difference between the Native American drumming and the African drumming, the African drumming is much more high energy and I think much more designed to bring sexual energy up. Mm-hmm. And I think they're very willing to own it. I I don't think they necessarily have more, but I think they're they're more joyful about expressing it. And um, that's really great and fun. And it makes perfect sense because that's how life goes on. I mean, the sexual energy is the most spiritual energy of all because without it, there's no life. And it's how we connect to each other, how we commune with each other. So, you know, to me, it's a beautiful, joyful thing that the sexual energy is so celebrated. Now, it can also get you into trouble, especially if you're thinking you're in a monogamous uh, culture. It's not necessarily so. So, you know, it, it, it depends on your point of view and, you know, what you're willing to embrace and what you need to be aware of. One thing I loved about African men when I was with them is one thing that they thought was absolutely hilarious in Western culture was the beauty pageant. Because they were like, well, all your women look alike. You're, and you, you want them to look alike. They all look like these blonde Barbie dolls. That's like, you know, in our culture, what we celebrate is the uniqueness of each woman. And what we admire in a woman is how she understands and owns her uniqueness. Mm. They're saying, like, how can you say that, you know, a um, mango is more delicious than a banana? It's like saying... A thin woman is more beautiful than a, you know, a robust woman. You know, they're both delicious in their own way. And by trying to make everyone fit this one category, you're taking away the the spice, the variety of life. So they would, they were always just like, that's just hilarious. (laughs) Marsha, we've come around to. ending this for now uh, what would you like to say in closing I would like to say dance whenever you have a chance Uh, I think that's an important thing that we all need to practice as much as possible Uh, find out more about Ifa and this kind of spirituality I think it's we don't know very much about it and I mean I think I've just scratched the surface there's a whole world there that can benefit us in many ways in one of them being in healing racism i think if because it's not about color it's about understanding these archetypes and enjoying the dance and tasting all the flavors of life and i think that can benefit all of us it's a, a very rich treasure from africa Thank you so much, Marsha. Thank you, Joanna. Always a pleasure. Thank you.